Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you this morning. Uh, if I was an outside observer looking, I'd think y'all don't like me very much. Oh, well, what is this junk right here? Maybe I spit too much and you see it flying or something like that. I'm glad you're here. And as I said, happy Father's Day for most of your dads, or at least for me. I hope that means lots of meat. Jackie is always like, hey, what, what do we want for sides? And I'm like, sides are irrelevant. It just matters how much meat we're having and what, what meat we're having. Because every, we, we all know this, don't we, that every food, what makes every food better? Bacon, right? Bacon. Yeah, bacon. Or some of you think no cheese, or some say chocolate. We tried that, though, once we thought chocolate makes every dessert better. You know, everybody loves chocolate and dessert. So Jackie makes an awesome apple pie. And so she made an awesome apple pie and dumped a whole packet of chocolate chips in it. No. <laughs> chocolate doesn't make everything better. It doesn't make apple pie better. Probably bacon wouldn't make it better either. But... Uh, <laughs> Usually those things work. So you may want to go, what's, what does bacon have to do with Father's Day? Well, not much really. But it has actually chocolate chips in apple pie has a lot to do with our passage. If you have a, a Bible with you, turn to Mark 2. You'll be surprised to see how chocolate chips in apple pie applies to the text. Mark chapter 2. Last week, we introduced within our series of Jesus encounters a sub-series called Jesus Encounters Religious Practices. So he's been encountering individuals all along the way, and that's what this gospel is about, recording them. But in this, these occasions, he encounters religious practices. And here's been our theme. When you encounter Jesus, faith fits. When you encounter Jesus, hope fits. When you encounter Jesus, love fits. But when you encounter Jesus, there are religious practices that don't fit. They're like square pegs trying to be forced into a round hole. Specifically, if you were here last week, we looked at the religious practice of isolation. That being that if you really love God, then you isolate yourself, you remove yourself from the world. As a reflection that you really love him, you stay away from everything in the world. And that was true in Jesus' day, but not only in Jesus' day. As you look back into history, what movement, what group of people reflect this principle most? Yes, monks, nuns, are a reflection of a devotion to God is reflected in a separation from the world. We're going to live behind high stone walls. We're going to live high up in trees. We're going to isolate ourselves. That's the thought. It's not a new thought. It's not an old thought. It's still a current thought of many, among many people today, that if you really love God, you stay away from the world. Jesus encountered that, and he encountered it because people ask him, uh, strike that more accurately, people ask his disciples this, why does Jesus eat with sinners? That doesn't seem right. It seems like he should be separating himself from them. And the answer Jesus gave was this, I eat with sinners because I didn't come to call the righteous. If you were here last week, why didn't he come to call the righteous? Because there aren't any who he came to call were sinners. Why? 
Because there's plenty of those. In fact, that's who all of us are. And he simply said, if I was coming to call the righteous, there wouldn't be anybody to call. Because everybody is a sinner. And so if I'm going to call them, I have to engage with them, not separate myself from them. That remains true today. If you and I are going to be like Jesus then we need to be people who will engage with the world. People who engage with people who aren't following Jesus. What was most challenging to me, maybe to you as well, from our passage last week is this. That if my practice is one of avoiding friendship with those who don't follow Jesus, I'm actually more like those who hated Jesus than Jesus. That can be really convicting. But Jesus demonstrated wisely, and we talked about the wisdom, if you missed it, we talked about the wisdom of how Jesus engaged with those who were not following him, because that is who he came to save. Not righteous, (laughs) there aren't any of those, but sinners. Second, religious practice that we're going to see Jesus encounter is the religious practice of traditions. Traditions aren't wrong. But we're going to see that some traditions are like this. A square peg trying to fit into a round hole. The religious tradition that he specifically encounters is in Mark chapter 2. So if you've opened there, look now at verse 18. John's disciples, it says, and the Pharisees were fasting. You know what fasting is? Not eating food. They were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Why aren't they following that religious tradition of fasting? So there's a specific question here, a specific issue of practice in question, and that is of fasting, and specifically fasting twice a week. Because that would have been the practice that would have been happening in Jesus' day. Those who were demonstrating that they loved God were fasting twice a week. Here's what you need to know about that. That was according to rabbinical tradition, not Old Testament law. If you're taking notes, let me let you write that down, and then I'll explain the, the difference between Old Testament law and rabbinic tradition. So they were fasting twice a week, except Jesus' disciples weren't. And they were going, hey, what's up with that? Why are John's, John the Baptist's disciples doing it? Pharisees are doing it. Yours aren't. If you were to take, let me explain. If you were to take your Old Testament and you were to say, I'm going to read through it this week. That'd be a big chunk to read. But if you were to read through it this week, here's what you would learn about fasting. That the Jewish people were required to fast one time a year. And it was on the Day of Atonement. If you want to read about it, Leviticus 16. That is the Day of Atonement when they were required to fast. But we are all competitors by nature. And so if you love God, you fast when he tells you to fast once a year. But if you really love God, you fast twice a year. Or if you love God a whole, whole, whole bunch, you fast once a month. Or if you fast, if you love God a whole, whole, whole bunch, you fast 
every week. And so this has literally what happened. The Old Testament required once a year. And then rabbis, Jewish religious leaders, began to demonstrate no and require, no, if you really love God, then you'll fast more and more. And it had reached in Jesus' time a fasting twice a week. And Jesus' disciples weren't doing it. And they're like, hey, what's up with that? Why aren't they doing it? And so Jesus gives this answer. Now, before we read it, you're going to notice. This will help you. You're going to notice he gives three don'ts and a do. Here they are. It starts with a bit of a story. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now put yourself in that story. Why can't they fast? Well, yeah, and so what would you be doing when the bridegroom's with you? It's a time for celebration, not for fasting. So he's going, it's the wrong time. So imagine this. My daughter, Abby, fifth of our six children, got married back in May. In March, we're talking about the reception. And so I say to her, Baby, I really want you and Brandon to be happy, so after the wedding ceremony, we're going to go back to the chapel, but instead of having food and music and dancing, I think we should have fasting and prayer. <laughs> what do you think about that? That'd be good. What do you think if that's what you show up, you come to the wedding, you show up, and we have fasting and prayer? What do you think? You think I'm a cheapskate which I am, but I've covered it in religious disguise. No, we don't want to do that. That'd be so unspiritual, prayer and fasting. I give you no food. No, you wouldn't buy that, and my daughter certainly wouldn't. She would say, Dad, I would love for you to fast and pray while I'm on my honeymoon. That'd be a great time. Not after the ceremony at the reception. All Jesus is saying is this. It's not the right time to be fasting. Because who's the bridegroom? He is. He's gone. I am with you. This is not the time for that. And in case you missed it, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So that's not the right time. Second, don't. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Any seamstress? Well, so this might be lost almost. If you have an old pair of pants that you love, and then you rip them, and you think, oh, I don't want to stop wearing them, and you patch them, simple truth here. You can't patch an old pair of pants with a new piece of cloth, because what's true about that new piece of cloth? It's unshrunk. You patch it on there tight, you wear it, you wash it, the patch shrinks, and what happens? Jesus says, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, <coughs> excuse me, and a worse tear results. Third, don't. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skin as well. But one puts, here's the do, new wine into fresh wineskins. So his answers are this, three do's and a don't. 
Why don't you fast? We don't fast when the groom is present, he says, because that's the wrong time. There's a right time. That would not be it. This is the wrong time. This is a time to be for celebration in his analogy. Second, he says you don't use unshrunk cloth to patch an old garment. Why not? Because that'll worsen the tear. It's the wrong piece of cloth to use on an old garment. And you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because that's the wrong wineskins to use for new wine. If you do that, it's going to lose the new and ruin the old. Now, I know you're trying, many of you are trying to write that down. But don't just write it down. <laughs> I can acknowledge before you that sometimes Jesus answers questions in really weird ways. And this can be one of them. I've often read this passage and thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a simple question. Why don't you fast and you go off on weddings, sewing, and winemaking? I don't get it. Well, what's the point? So is Jesus being random here? Uh, by faith, I believe he's not. I actually believe he's not being random or weird. He's just a lot smarter than you and I. And so it takes me more than a little bit of time to think through these examples and say, what is he actually saying about the question? And what I realize is this. He's saying something that doesn't just deal with fasting. He's saying there is a truth that needs to be applied according to all religious practices, including fasting. And here it is. I'd simply call it the abiding, oops, I, I didn't give you the last do. You do put new wine in fresh wineskins. You put new wine, fresh wineskins, so that they, the wineskins can fresh, can stretch as the wine ferments. So the abiding principle. What is Jesus saying here? Let me show you, and then I think you'll see it clearly by his examples. He is saying, in all religious practices, current realities determine appropriate practices. Current realities determine appropriate practices. In other words, if the bridegroom's present, what's the appropriate practice? Celebration. Absent, that's the time to fast. If the garment's old, what's the appropriate practice? Use an old patch. If the wine is new, what's the appropriate practice? Use new wineskin. You see, you have to determine the appropriate practice according to the current reality. Jesus is actually demonstrating to them that there is a new principle that needs to be applied to their practices. And the new principle is that he has come. You see, I am not saying current realities as we decide them. That's what our world's doing right now. Current realities determine appropriate practices, and therefore, we're in a world of hurt. We're in a downward, destructive spiral. 
So I'm not saying we get to determine what the current reality is. I'm saying that the current realities as the scripture defines them. And what is happening is this. There have been appropriate practices that have been established according to Old Testament realities. But Jesus has now come, and because he is present, there are new practices that are consistent with his coming. Can I say it this way? Jesus is the new wine. And you can't put the new wine in old wineskins. You can't put a new relationship with Jesus into old practices, or what will happen? You'll lose the new and ruin the old. You following? There is so much that is actually still left over from Old Testament practices that are still going on in our day. But here's what's challenging about this. Long-standing traditional practices die hard. So I'm about to talk about three things. Three old practices that, we, that, that I think we're going to see that are inconsistent with the new reality of Jesus, the new wine. And some of these you're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. You are upsetting what I have followed and practiced my entire life. You can't talk me out in 10 minutes of what I've believed for 50 years. Well, I'm going to try. Because I think there's new wine that we just got stuck in old ways. And actually, you're going to, if you will embrace the new reality of Jesus, you're going to go, well, this is awesome. This makes sense. Perfect sense. All right. So I'll frame them in this way. I get asked regularly when new people come to the chapel about why we do things and don't do things. Three specifically. There's more than these, but three I'm going to address this morning. First is this, the practice of tithing. Have you noticed that we do not teach tithing at the chapel? Have you noticed you haven't heard me ever say, bring in the full tithe? Now you may go, yeah, I have noticed that. Why don't you do that? So let me ask you a question, just to get perspective. Both in this, in North and over in South, raise your hand if you were brought up being taught to tithe. Let me see your hand. See, this is just, no, 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 this is not a hard, keep, keep it up for a moment. And, and go ahead and look around. Is that not, the vast majority of us were taught to tithe growing up. And it's probably the same in South because every auditorium I've been in this morning, that's been the same. The vast majority have raised their hands. It's the way I grew up. I was taught to tithe. It started when I began my allowance at like 12 years old, maybe 10. Here's a dollar given to me in change. Why? Because mom and dad were going to be sitting right there on the row with me. And when the offering plate plate went by, they expected I would drop the dime in the plate. The other dime 
went to the savings account because I was growing that baby fast at a dime a week. <laughs> but and the other 80 cents I got to buy pizza with or whatever. So uh, that was what I was taught from the very beginning. My parents taught me tithing. And like many of you, you've practiced it. I went to Bible college, practiced tithing, taught tithing. Got out of Bible college, practiced tithing, taught tithing in a school setting. Then I got to the chapel, and I was required to teach, and I wanted to teach on giving. And I had this amazing discovery. Here was my discovery. Oh, I meant to say, some of you are going, uh, I wasn't taught tithing, I don't know what tithing is. Tithing is the idea that, not the idea, tithing is 10% of what we have belongs to the Lord. That's what tithing means. 10% belongs to the Lord. The often application then of tithing is that if 10% belongs to the Lord, then who gets the other 90%? Yeah, 90%, the other 90% is mine. That's the thought process. So that's how I had functioned. Then I actually, in my own, being forced to teach it, went, I should actually study this for myself instead of just repeating what I'd always been told. Here's what I learned. That though many of the New Testament letters to churches mandate giving, none, and I mean none, mandate tithing. Wow. I was like, dude, I'm 23 years old. I've grown up always believing this, being taught it thousands of years. This is what people have done. Where did we get this? Do you know what I mean by New Testament letters? The New Testament, Bible is Old Testament, New Testament. New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels we record the story History of Jesus. Next book, Acts, the history of the church expanding from Jerusalem and beginning to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then, the rest of the New Testament, before you get to Revelation, are letters written either to people or to, uh, to people in the sense of individuals or to churches in particular cities like Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi. Or to regions like Galatia, the book of Galatians. None of those letters giving instructions to churches and how they are to function with the new wine of Jesus speak to tithing. Many of them speak to giving, none of tithing. But I had been taught tithing, so where did it come from? It came from the Old Testament where the people of God were the Israelites, and they were a nation to themselves. And as a nation to themselves, people were required, Jewish people were required every year to give a tithe, 10% of their resources to provide for the Levitical priests who served the people. They were also then required to give 10% of their resources to provide for the national holidays, the feasts that they would celebrate throughout the year as Jewish people. 
Then every third year, they were required to give 10% of their resources to provide for the poor among them in the nation. So there was in essence, and don't be shocked by this, there was in essence an annual 23% tax. Which made sense because they were a nation and it was a tax to support the infrastructure of how they functioned. But then Jesus came along and established that the people of God are not simply Jews, but they are Jews and Gentiles, males and females, that they are from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The nation was no longer functioning as the people of God only. And with it, tithing became, should have, Gone away, the idea that 10% belongs to God. The New Testament teaches something completely different. I'll pick one. 2 Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. That's dramatically different than being assigned. You must give 10% here, 10% here, and 10% here. You are assigned a 23% annual tax. No, each one must do, that is giving, and I'm, I'm showing you this for sake of time. In the context, this is all about giving. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, this is totally different than an assigned tax. This is purposed in my heart. And who pays taxes but except out of compulsion? And who does it joyfully? No, this is totally different. This is voluntary, joyfully, generously. Because the New Testament word, if you put it all together, the only thing I should have added here in the midst of all the things that the New Testament says about giving, in his first letter to Corinthians, in chapter 16, he says, each one again there is to set aside to give, and it adds this phrase, as he is prospered, as God has enabled. So the idea is that there's not a set percentage, or there's a set amount, but there is a principle that we give as we purpose in our heart based on how God has blessed us. The key word to the New Testament giving is not tithing, but stewards. And stewards, that word simply understood, a steward is someone who manages according to the owner's priorities. The steward doesn't own it. He manages for the owner what the owner owns. And so, as children of God, we are stewards of what God has given. Now, here's the funny part. When I first began recognizing the New Testament didn't teach tithing, give 10% to the Lord, people were like, we don't have to tithe? Sweet! That's what I've been taught my entire life. I get that 10% back? Well... Not exactly, because the extension of what tithing is that if we give 10% to God, the other 90% belongs to 
me. That's never been the intent of tithing, but that's the net result. I give to him, I pay my God tax, the rest is mine. Mm. Actually, stewardship recognizes that I manage according to his priorities, and 100% of it, not 10%, 100% of it is his. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We went from 10% to 100%? Yes, in other words, as a steward, I don't simply give 10% and then keep 90%. I'm accountable to the Lord for all 100%. I'm accountable for the, to the Lord, not for only for what I give, but what I save and what I spend. Because it's all His. I'm a steward, and I'm accountable. And so people go, okay, I'll just tithe. <laughs> That's what I've always taught. And in fact, it's much easier in some sense to tithe than it is to give. Just tell me the percentage. And then I'll decide actually what I want. Because studies reveal that though most people have been taught tithing and say they're tithers, they actual, in actuality, if they give, they give an average of 2.3%. So, yes, I believe, yes, I've been taught tithing, but here's how much I give. And I am saying to you, there's new wine. And tithing doesn't hold the new wine. The new wine is stewardship, where it all belongs to the Lord, and I purpose in my heart according to how he has prospered me. But now I have to decide how much. Mm. And that gets scary, because I find as many people, maybe more people, are inhibited in their giving by fear than greed. It's not so much that I'm greedy. I'm afraid if I give it away, I won't have it for in case I have a, an emergency, if I have a need. So my fear inhibits my giving. And it's like the Lord knows that. And so here's what he says. If you're afraid to, as a steward, not as a tither, as a steward, give. He says, same chapter, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for everything you want. Okay, obviously that's not what it says. That's how it's been perverted. There are some in our day who would say, if you will give, then God will give back to you everything you want. It's their own get-rich spiritual scheme. It's not what the scripture says. But just because they've perverted it doesn't mean we shouldn't believe what it really says. What it really says is that if we are give, if we're willing to give, God will then give to us so that we can abound in giving more, in good work. In case you missed it, next verse. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for, for doing what? Pack in my pockets for later. No, God wants a harvest. How do you get a harvest? You got to plant seed. And so he has given to all of us seed. 
but we've varied in what we've done with it. Some of us have stuffed our pockets. Some of us have sewn it. But we're afraid to sew it because what if we need it for later? And he says, I want a harvest. And a harvest only comes by people who sow. So if I'm going to give seed, who am I going to give it to? Sowers. That's exactly what he promises. I'll multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In case you missed it, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. You see, he says it three times. Don't let, don't get stuck in tithing. That's old wineskin. There's a new wine. And that is the grace of God in Jesus. And you get to be a steward of all that he owns and has allowed you to manage. Don't let fear, don't let fear cause you to shrink back. He promises three times in a row, not to, not a prosperity gospel, you give and you get rich. No, but you give so that he gives more so you can give more. So, sowers get more seed. That's what he says. For the ministry of the service of sowing is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, which is awesome, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Why is it overflowing with thanksgiving? Because many needs are being supplied. See, do you get the point? The privilege is we get seed to sow. And when we sow, other people's needs get met. And when their needs get met, they say, thank you, God. And the more we sow, the more needs get met. And the more needs get met, the more, thank you, God. Thank you, God. That's the pattern that he is saying. And so we have this joy of generous giving versus the old wine of tithing. First, the joy of purposing in my heart. Don't miss that. Imagine our new president said, all right, I'm tired of our old tax code. It's too complicated. For 2017, here's the tax code. Just send in what you purpose in your heart. Yeah, you'd be sweet. I purpose zero. Or then maybe you'd go, no, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I do appreciate policemen and firemen, protection and roads. Now, I am a benefactor of our country and our protection. I do want to actually send in some. Would that not be a totally different experience? I mean, you're thinking, that's just stupid. Well, it would be different, wouldn't it? If you genuinely said, I appreciate the freedoms that I have. I know that that takes resources. I'm going to send in as I purpose in my heart. That would be totally different than that begrudging moment of the tax check. That's the joy of generous giving. You purpose in my heart. Second, the joy of experiencing God's promised provision for me as I give seed to sowers. Third, the joy of seeing and be a, being a part of needs being met. Fourth, the joy of the praise of God being multiplied. More and more, thank you, God. 
Fifth, the joy of giving someone else's money away. Have you not noticed how much fun it is to give somebody else's money away? My kids have. They've noticed. Dad, let's go out to eat. You're paying, right? If I say, sure, everybody gets their own. You know what the new question is? What's at the house? What do we have at, what do we have at the house? They're glad to spend my money. Super glad to spend my money. They're not nearly as excited to spend their own money. Now, here's what I've learned, though, as a child of God. When I have a hard time giving, it's because I've made his money mine. It's the only reason it's hard to give. Only reason. If I really kept it as his Fun to give his money. It's always fun to give somebody else's money away. The indicator, maybe you'll wrestle through this yourself. For me, when, I, when it's hard for me to give, that's the reminder, Doug, your fingers have gotten sticky. Your heart's gotten sticky. You're trying to take hold, take claim of what is the Lord's. When I know it's his, then it's the joy of giving. So, is it wrong to tithe in the sense, is it wrong to give 10% to God? No, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that's an old wineskin. It won't hold the joy of relationship with Jesus. You're going to lose that and ruin the old. The privilege is for you to say, God has blessed me. I'm going to purpose in my heart and voluntarily and joyfully give as he has enabled me according to his priorities. That's giving with Jesus as the new one. A particular application real quick, and then we'll look at the second question. You may have noticed, if you follow in the bulletin, at the chapel, very different in 2017 than last year, we're over $100,000 behind budget this year. And so I'm not going to belabor it. I'm simply going to say we believe that Jesus is the head of our church. We believe we are the body. As children of God, we get blessed with the privilege of managing his resources. Would you prayerfully purpose in your own heart how you might address that budget shortfall? We'll trust him with it, and we'll trust you with listening to him. We're not having a second offering right now. Second question, Doug, why do you have people call you Doug and not Pastor Rutt or Pastor Duck? And there's no parking spaces around here that are like reserved for the pastor. Why do you all do that? Because that's what people are, are used to. And there's no, I've been told, there's no parking spaces for pastor's wife. Why not? I've been asked. Why not? I'm just playing about that one. This is genuine. People get used to this. We had a guy come on staff, our bookkeeper, and, and he insisted, no, 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 I, I, you're the pastor. I need to call you Pastor Doug. I said, as long as you call me Pastor Doug, I'm calling you Bookkeeper Steve. <laughs> I can play that game. What's my point? There is rooted, there is rooted in an old reality the practice of a select priesthood. That there are all the people 
And then there are a select few priests. And that's rooted in the Old Testament practice. Quick lesson for you. In the Old Testament, the Israelites all were part of one of 12 tribes. Of those 12 tribes, all the priests came from only one, the tribe of Levi. Not every man who was from the tribe of Levi was a priest, but every priest was from the tribe of Levi. If you were from the tribe of Judah or Reuben or one of the other, you could not be a priest. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. And in the Jewish nation, the priest wore special garments, did performed special services, received special privileges. They were select group apart from the rest of the people. And we tend to carry that over. But there's a new reality. Hebrews, the letter written to Hebrews, specifically describes the new reality of the priesthood. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, Every Old Testament priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because he was finished, right? For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So get the big picture. For generations after generations after generations, there was a select priesthood who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. It was their unique and special privileged role. But it never took away the sin of the world. And so they had to keep doing it day after day, generation after generation, until Jesus, the Son of God, who was without sin himself, offered himself, not an animal, himself to be the sacrifice once for all. So that whoever would trust in him, their sin would be taken away. Because of that new reality, Jesus as our expression, Jesus is the new wine. Watch the therefore later in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just stop right there. Don't read the rest. In the Old Testament culture, they had priests like we just talked about. And the priest functioned first at the tabernacle and then at the temple where the presence of God was. But only the priest could go into the holy place. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year. But because of what Jesus has done, look at what it says. Therefore, brother, and since we, all of us, have confidence to enter the holy place, why can we enter where only priests could go before? Why? I know because of what Jesus has done. But what is true of us that we can now go where priests, only priests could go before? Because the scripture declares there is no longer with the new wine of Jesus a select priesthood. All believers are now priests. 
If you have been born again, if you have been redeemed through faith in Jesus, you're a priest as much as I'm a priest. All believers are priests. But you are a chosen race, Peter writes. A, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, all of us for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies, not just me, not just Dallas, not just Matt, that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a priest. And as a priest, you have received, each one of you have been born again, a special gift. Therefore, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see the new wine that Jesus has brought so that there is not a select priesthood. You're a priest as much as I am. And the joy of serving and being a priest is this, that I experience the privilege of access to God at any time, any place. It's no longer for a select few. So when people say to me after service, hey, I've been praying about this. Uh, maybe you could pray for me because I know your prayers get higher. Okay, that's just junk. That's just not true. Let's stop that foolishness. I know what we mean, but that's not true. That's rooted in an old mindset. There's a new reality that I want to pray for you and with you, not because my prayers get higher, but because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Your prayers get as high as my prayers. We're priests. It's not that I am a select person, so I get to park where you park. You park where I park. And if you ever noticed, I don't wear robes. Never have. But I am thinking I should start wearing shorts. Do you know why? Because a lot of the priests out there, I, I sat there in back and thought, look at all these priests walking around in shorts. I should start wearing shorts. Yeah. Yes? No? You look at me like, would you be bothered if I wore shorts? So there'd be some. Oh, you can't do that. My wife's going to be a, bit, a little bit hacked at me about this one. You can't do that. Well, all the other priests are. No, 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 no. You're See, we make divisions that no longer exist because of the new wine of Jesus. And you can't put new wine in old wineskins. What happens if you do? You lose the new and you ruin the old. See, there was something very special about the Old Testament, but we're not there anymore. We shouldn't continue to live in that way. You know, the other joyful privilege here, I experience intimacy with Christ, with God directly. You see, much of our world still lives in an old practice of there has to be another man, a priest, who serves as a mediator between them and God. That's not true. That's an old practice that does not acknowledge the new reality of Jesus as our mediator once and for all so that you have direct access, intimacy with God yourself. You don't need a priest. You don't need me to pray for you. You can pray yourself. That's the beauty of the gospel, the new wine of Jesus. Third, I experience the joyful privilege of God at work in me and through me. 
That's not reserved for a few. It's not reserved for priests. Well, it is. <laughs> as long as you know you're, if you've been born again, you're a priest. There's no greater privilege than being used by God. All right. Whew. Fast, last one, real quick. The practice of a sacred building or sanctuary. Uh, people want to know. Why, do you, why don't you call the place where we worship a sanctuary? Why do you always call this the auditorium? This is the sanctuary. And this is what we tend to think. I was taught as a kid, hey, stop, stop running. This is God's house. Or you come in the back door, shh, this is the house of the Lord. You know what this is? This is the North Auditorium. It's a room with more comfortable chairs than in the South Auditorium. A little more space. Oh, hey, don't clap too loud. No, we love you in South. It's just a room. Now, some people go, no, 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 I like to go South. It feels more like a sanctuary. I understand. I understand. Just know this. That is rooted in an old idea that the presence of God was in a place. And it was in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, and then ultimately in the temple. But that changed with Jesus. The new wine Jesus ripped the veil from top to bottom. And now the scripture clearly says, do you not know that you, you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you, you are the house of God. This is not the house of God. You're the house of God. It's the body is the temple of God. Now you may go, well, what's the big deal? Oh, that's dramatically different. Because all this whole idea of, well, I need to go to church, get my hour in with God, and get on with the rest of my week, as if he's here, and you can come visit, and then leave, and him get stuck here in this room. Not true. Your body. But it's stuff like, would you watch the movie in this church that you would in your home? <gasps> no, no, no. Why? This is just a bigger room than your family room. Well, this is the church. No. It was the church in your home that was watching that movie. Oh, ouch. You see what I'm saying? This, this is the most subtle, most impactful, most challenging of the three that I don't get to go see God and leave God. I don't get to segment my life. This, this is the temple of God. And so my accountability is I don't get to do with my body whatever I want because my body doesn't belong to me. My body belongs to him. It's his temple. It's his dwelling place. That the glory of God is now revealed in how I live. For, for centuries... It was thought Old Testament mentality, the glory of God is revealed in the beauty of the architecture of the building. 
And, and I'm not saying beautiful art, art, architecture doesn't glorify God. I'm saying that's not where he dwells. You want to glorify God? Then make this beautiful. Then make, live a holy life here. And that Jesus goes with me wherever I go instead of me dressing up to go see him. So Jesus is the new wine. This is the whole point. <laughs> they ask about a fasting question. They got a whole lot more than what they bargained for. They don't fast because there's new wine and new wine brings new practices. So are you with the new practices? Are you a grace, joy-filled steward giver? Are you stuck in an old practice? Are you a functioning as a priest who serves? Are you just still in that, when I just write a check and you, the professionals do it? And he's still stuck in a place versus gone, now, whatever I do, whether I'm a mechanic, a programmer, an architect, teacher, wherever I go, whatever I do, I glorify God by how I live in that moment, because this is the temple of God. That's the new wine, the joyful new wine of Jesus. So Father, I pray that our practices would catch up to the reality. I know that'll die hard for some. I pray that your truth would encourage them to step into the new realities and that we would be a generous, joyful, serving, holy people declaring the excellences of your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless.